0: Oh, good evening everyone. Thank you for inviting me here, hosting me here, and um, so I've been invited to to speak about kirtan, and it happens that um, in the context of my visit here, if I have a number of Speaking engagements, and I've been speaking from the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And um, our discussion this morning ended. Bhagavad Gita is, of course, a famous Hindu text, also known as Gita Upanishad. And um, it's been translated many, many times. Some of you may be familiar with it. You may have many copies of different translations, even over the uh, centuries. And um, it's a sacred uh, conversation between Krishna and his friend, the warrior Arjuna. And, uh, that's better. <laughs> and um, in, in the ninth chapter, the subject is is bhakti. The whole subject of the book is bhakti, really, but indirectly and directly about bhakti, what bhakti is, what bhakti isn't, what different types of bhakti, there are mixtures of bhakti with other paths, bhakti mixed with yoga marg, bhakti mixed with jnana marg, with a path of knowledge, bhakti mixed with karma marg, with a path of action and so forth. Then shuddha, shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, bhakti only bhakti, ananya bhakti. And um, here in the ninth chapter he's talking about this ananya, ananya no, like no other exclusive bhakti, and bhakti means, um, from the root, budh. it means to, sh- to share. So it's, about, it's, a, it's, a, it's a yoga of the heart, giving. And um, in the context of speaking about this yoga and speaking of himself, this type of yoga, bhakti, and speaking of himself as the, as the object of bhakti, the perfect object of devotion, where devotion can best and most comprehensively be reposed. The idea being that, just like, for example, the center from a nutritional point of view, in one sense of our body, is our stomach. Because if we put the nutrition in the form of food into our stomach, from that central location, it will be mystically, if you will, distributed to every other part of the body. Whereas if we leave the food in the hand or it gets stuck on the tongue um, and never gets to the stomach, then we won't have the same effect. So, is there a center? Is Is there a center in the brain that if you press one spot, the whole body will be paralyzed? So, as far as love, as far as giving, goes, we can give, and we can give and expect something in return, or we can give without expectation of anything in return. And even if we give without expectation of return, if we don't give to something or someone who can take all that we can give, the experience of giving will not be complete. So. Two sides of giving, if you will, comprehensively. One side is to give qualitatively, that is to say, without expectation of return. And secondly, where, where to give? Then, should it be to the circumference or should it be to the center? Shall we water the leaf of the tree and the flower or the root? So, is there a root to our very existence? And, um, of course, Bhagavad Gita says that there is, and Krishna boldly says, I'm that root. And it sounds rather ostentatious and <laughs> maybe a little hard to digest, but uh, it gives a lot of reasoning for that and why, and and how the mystics in Bhakti have perceived that center, if you will, that, that center, that source, as youthful, depicted uh, and experienced as... An adolescent, for example, rather than an old man on a cloud keeping score or something like that. Youth is, is attractive, youth is sought after by everyone. It wants to say, they want to say that this, the nature of the center, if you understand it correctly, that naturally and spontaneously you will be irresistibly drawn towards it. The word Krishna means irresistible. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. So we try to take it out of any kind of sectarian context, then. The center, our source, is actually the, the source of love. If we we're a loving being, if we have and we do a capacity to give, and if we really all the time only do give ourselves to one extent or another, knowingly or unknowingly, we're giving ourselves, committing ourselves, um, if we are a, a unit of giving tendency and capacity, then if we have a source, that source must be the reservoir of giving. And But that giving, I want to say, I'm describing Krishna as the taker, right? And we are as the giver. But the nature of the center is such that in taking, Its taking constitutes giving. Do you follow me? The stomach takes, and because it is the center, its taking constitutes giving because it distributes that food everywhere. It digests every morsel and doesn't keep it, gives it all back, something like that. So when we speak of Krishna, we speak about this uh, center. And the word, as I say in Sanskrit, it means irresistible. So it wants to say, they want to say, the sacred texts, the mystics, that this center, as you start to get a focus on that, because it is what it is, it starts to become attractive, it's charming, it has the capacity to charm you just like... If you were a young boy and got charmed by a young girl, or if you were a young girl and got charmed by a young boy, infatuated and driven to the point that uh, that infatuation, affection and so forth uh, did not answer to reason. And any reason that you put in its way would only serve to, to intensify it. This kind of example is given, just like if a young girl falls in love with a young boy and mother says, that is the wrong guy. That is the wrong thing to say. <laughs> that will just make her more determined and so forth. So it's... Um, it doesn't answer to reason. It's so in the same way the bhakti tradition says to us that we can be driven and irresistibly drawn towards the center, it has such a charming... Nature and uh, it, it, it so therefore it's described as everything that is attractive to us in the world, like youth, as I say, is attractive. Um, romance. It's, it is, Krishnas des- is a way of describing the kind of romantic heart of the absolute, the love life of of ultimate reality. It's not, in other words, it depicts ultimate reality not as being static, but static and dynamic. What I mean by that is, our present life, material life, is not that dynamic. It's kind of a dead thing flapping for a few years only. That's not a very pretty way of depicting our life, is it? <laughs> yeah. But think about it. This is a little bit of a science here. You know, <laughs> you have to look at it kind of through the beyond the packaging. America's good at packaging, you know, and um, but the goods aren't always as good as the packaging. No, I mean to say that our material life, as much as we like it, we can't keep it. How disappointing that would be! If you like, you're attached to something. You say, Swami, I like this life. I have to tell you, one, you can't keep it. Whatever you have that makes your identity, your sense of I, our sense of I in this world is derived from our sense of mine. Whatever I think is mine determines what I am. Nothing's ours, so what kind of sense of identity have we arrived at by material acquisition, by possession, by attachment? Do you follow me? If it's it's my car, you know, and I got it because uh, that ad just like spoke to me about what I am, so then uh, my attachment to my car, it's defining me. My attachment to my country is defining me. I'm an American because I'm attached to to America. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father because I'm attached to my daughter. My daughter is a daughter because she's attached to her mother. And uh, so that if we look carefully at it, I think you'll see, you'll agree with me, that we are our attachments. What we think is happy, what we think is sad, what we think is hot and cold which is all really a product of our mind and the, the, what registers in our mind when our senses are in touch with sense objects. One person says it's hot, one says it's cold. So which is that? That determining factor is something that itself will be here today and gone tomorrow. So is there a reality that, 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 that transcends the limits of our perception of reality? And, of course, the yogic answer is that there is. The Gita's answer is that there is. And so, to come out of the small world of our mind, uh, kind of come out of death row, I mean, you know, we're condemned here. We are in a cell and we have a sentence. <laughs> it's a karmic sentence and we've, that we've uh, reaped based on what we've sown. Hmm? And so there's a way, and that is yoga, to come out from that and have life beyond the limits of the world, small world of our mind. That's not even making us comfortable, and therefore it's very unreasonable for us to insist that everyone else should fit within it. Hmm? So to come out from that, this is kind of the basic idea of yoga, and and the coming out of that through bhakti is made easy by having a glimpse of. Uh, that center that in, depicted as it is by those in bhakti as being everything that's attractive, so to speak, youth. Um, I said that it's de- Krishna is depicting the Absolute as having a romantic life. It's Absolute it's alive. It's dynamic and static. Our life is kind of static at best, but or I would call it non-dynamic, in that there's a lot of movement, but it's going nowhere. If you try to go uh, up the down escalator, that will not be a good proposal. We're like in quicksand. This is the karmic implication of of, uh, the yogic worldview. The more you move, the more you go down, the more you take, because we're taking in order to move. We have a sense of ourself. In order to maintain it, we have to do something, don't we? You can't just sit there. You've got to get busy. And what do you have to get busy doing? Taking part of what's out there. And so there's some competition and so forth. And the one living being is food for another. Jiva, jivasya Jiva, that's Darwinism. And he's right about that. That's not the whole show, but you know, there's some truth to that. So that kind of life is troublesome. We're moving because we're being chased. You follow me? In other words, we, 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 we've we've hunted, and now we're being hunted. There's a reaction. We've taken from the environment, and the environment wants to take back. So we're being chased by our own past, and so to come to stillness. I'd call that static kind of fullness and to rest, and from by stopping from taking. After all, if our life constitutes exploitation in one form or another, hmm, even by breathing, and, and we can somehow stop from becoming a taker, that's kind of an abstract expression of love, isn't it? No exploitation. It's a big thing because the world is so much based on exploitation. Our identification with the body forces us to be a taker, because it's needy. We have to. So in that condition, how much can we give? How much can we really love? It's hard to give if you're if you if you're needy. We all feel needy. So to become full will not be by adding more things on to our life. <laughs> that will make it more complicated. But by moving in a backwards way, from outward going current to the inward going current. hmm? To know the self above the mind, above intellect, hmm? beyond the body, that you are the experiencer, and matter is experienced. Hmm? And to study yourself, to know yourself, rather than just just try so hard to know matter that you forgot about yourself and made yourself into matter. That's uh, science, too. Um, or the popular idea that consciousness is merely an epiphenomenon of the brain, we have a little bit of a different idea. And we have a very objective, radically objective approach to finding that out. It's called detachment. Moving away from attachments, that's very objective. You follow me? If you're too close to a thing, you can't see it for what it is. You step back with detachment, objectively then you can see for what it's so our yoga is about radical objectivity Vedanta radical objectivity you have to divorce your self from false possessiveness from attachments that are creating this false I so it's it's radical it's extreme much more than you're required to in the laboratory when making experiments and writing your doctorate dissertation, it's you're the you know you're on the altar, so to speak, of of sacrifice. And what goes on in that, in in, in yoga in general, of course, is this is this at effort. The theory is that the consciousness is um, ontologically uh, independent of matter, and so. Yoga involves, to some extent, separating, then, ourselves, as far as is possible in embodied life, from the demands of the body, which is a form of matter, and the demands of the mind, kind of the subtle form of matter. And those who do that successfully, they they arrive at a, a sense of self that's enduring, and it's blissful, so forth. So, to move from this kind of Circular movement of material life—the quicksand of the karmic implication, the taking—the land of the hunters and the hunted to to, a, to to no taking. You've gone somewhere. If you go from negative numbers to zero, you've gone into into the positive. You follow? Zero has a positive connotation in relation to negative numbers. So many schools of thought speak about emptying ourselves out of all these desires and attachments and so forth. But in the bhakti tradition, while that is also required, it's done in a very, number one, user-friendly way. And number two, it takes us beyond what we would call an interim phase of, of stillness, full, stillness, full, static life, rather than a meaningless movement based on ignorance. We come to that, but we go beyond that, to the center, to the charming center, to the irresistible center, drawn in there. And it has a life. It's alive. It's so full that it's moving. We're moving because we're so empty. We need... We feel needy, therefore we're moving. And our movement is taking, and that's implicating us in this karmic repercussions, and so we're stuck in this cycle of neediness. We take, but we don't get fulfilled from that, because taking will never fulfill. Giving will fulfill. Giving is the getting, and so forth. So the idea in the bhakti tradition is that this center is so full, so complete, that it moves. One thing is to move out of incompleteness. Another is to be so full that you don't have to move. If you don't have have any want, why move? Right? I mean, we're moving because we have perceived necessities, desires. If we have no desire, we don't have to move. That's a pretty peaceful (laughs) idea. But is there a possibility becoming so full that you move out of fullness, out of the joy of celebrating the fullness. And therefore we there we've come to the idea of, for example, kirtan as opposed to meditation. Don't they have different they have different connotations? Kirtan even is often accompanied by ecstatic dance. And meditation is still and quiet and alone. So let me take just that a little bit further. There's a lot of no sounds, let's say, and they're all different notes. And it's disturbing us. So to get peace we just have one note. Oh ah, peaceful. All these discordant sounds. Hmm? Disrupting, disturbing the mind. We do all the way with all of them. One sound. Oh, so peaceful. And they meditate. Om. But there's another idea, to take it further, to use a musical example, that we call harmony, which is many, many, many notes. The more, the better. All playing the same tune, right? Many different notes. So Bhakti is advocating an end, a result, something like that where there's many, but the many are all playing the same song. That's what we call leela, divine play. They enter into the divine play of Krishna. He's orchestrating that, the center is orchestrating that, and they're all participating in that. Hmm? So it's a living and alive idea of transcendence. And it's depicted, as I say, by the mystics, as being the romantic life of Brahman, the great... Absolute, ultimate reality, and it's like youthful. And you, you—if you know enough about it, you will be attracted, like a young, like a young girl to a young boy, infatuated, irresistible. And so, if you study the personhood of Krishna, as described in the sacred text, you see, oh, this is what they're talking about. It's a very—it's um, um, not a sectarian kind of idea of God. Again, the very word Krishna means irresistible. So he's speaking here, Krishna, and he's saying, I'm irresistible, that's just my nature, and I'm the source of everything, and so forth. But of course, as the source, as the taker, because he is the center, in the context of his taking, what happens is giving. It all comes back to us. So if we give to the center, that giving will be getting, because if it's properly centered, it will all come back to us. Jai jataumam teye, tam Krishna says, as they approach, I'm reciprocating accordingly. So here in this chapter, he's speaking about bhakti centered exclusively on himself, a spiritual uh, discipline of devotion it it's it's funny it's a spiritual discipline of love and the two things don't make a lot of and uh, kind of go together discipline and love love is more like spontaneous and without discipline and so forth and and uh, it 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 naturally fosters outbursts of song hmm? exuberant uh, dancing and uh, expression and so forth hmm? so he says He's been speaking about himself and about, it, and now he says, and there are people that understand, he says, what I am, what Krishna means. He said, There are people, he tells Arjun. He said he's explained, there are people who don't understand. They think I'm this, they think that, they don't. There are people that do. And then he says, and this is what they're like. He says, tayanto mam.' he says. Satatam means always. Kirtan—that's what we're talking about, right? Kirtan. Kirtan means kriti; it means fame. It comes from the root fame, fame. So, so to 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 glorify someone else, to sing the glory of someone else, to praise someone else, to give fame to someone else is the idea. He says satatam kirtayanto ma. Ma means me. He says that. My devotees, these high-minded people who have understood that life is about giving and they've thought about it deeply and try to consider where then I can give that my giving will be most complete. And they've arrived at at myself, and through guidance, they're going about it in a systematic Manner under good guidance. That means yoga. That's a system to that. Uh, He says, these people, satatam, ketayantomam. Satatam means always. It means they're preoccupied with this chanting. It also means this. It means always, means if it's always, it means anytime. You follow? they're always chanting about me, means that their chanting about me is not restricted to any particular time or place. Now, if you want to meditate, it's not a good idea to do it on the bus or at the stoplight. You follow? There are some, strictly, strictly speaking, there are some, and meditation is spoken about in the Gita, there are some rules for meditation. Your seat cannot be too high, not too low. The yogis were told, but too low, some snake might bite you in the forest. If it's too high, you might fall off. (laughs) 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 So uh, not too high, not too low. And uh, you have to be uh, in a quiet place, alone. And many, many, many kind of prerequisites for such. It's not satatams. It cannot be done anywhere, at any time, at any place. Therefore, the kirtan is more user-friendly in this way. It's a, it's a means by which the center is more accessible. And the means is actually a more attractive, more compelling means. If I sit in meditation alone, to be alone, hmm? Meditation is a shutting off, so to speak, from the world. Mm. But kirtan implies a shutting off from the world in the context of pursuing something positive. It's like they say in football, the best defense is a good offense. So bhakti is like an, is going after the absolute. Hmm? Like I said, with the fervor of a young girl for a young boy, something like that, with a high ideal and and um, and so this kirtan, it's lends to this. It's it's actually a limb of bhakti. Hari bhakti. Hmm? Kirtan nowadays people do kirtan of all types. We hear Shiva Kirtan and Kali Kirtan and Durga Kirtan, and Ganesh Kirtan and so forth. But if you study the sacred text about Ganesh, and we study the sacred texts about Shiva, his own words, or Durga, so you will never find them saying, please do kirtan about me, sing my name. Never. You study it and say, never, they never say that. They never say, just by kirtan of my name, everything will come. They never say that. Hmm? Neither do they represent the this, this same thing the center in the same sense that the person, the ideal of Krishna does. They're not representing, for example, Shiva, the romantic heart of the Absolute. He's representing something important. Hmm? And he'll have to pass through Shiva Hmm? To to come to that center. He's dressed in ashes. You've seen the picture? Naked, dressed in ashes. He picks around himself a garland of skulls. Have you seen? Depicted in art, what's that all about? Huh? He's saying this world. He's renounced. He's completely detached. He's meditating. Hmm? He's saying the world is whether you garland me with flowers or skulls. It's all the same thing. Hmm? He has no. He sees no difference between it. It's all. They're all appearances only. Only appearances. No clothes. Ashes only. Ashes will f- come from the fire. Fire of sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. We put something in the fire <laughs> and we stay outside. I'll give something into the fire of sacrifice and I'll stay here. He says, jump in. You're, you're, there's a nice... Shop there if you can get a clothing of ashes. Hmm. Hmm. This is a strong statement about the nature of material existence that he makes. Important statement. Hmm. But if you study the sacred text very carefully, you see Shiva is meditating on something also. What's he meditating on? In Priyad Bhagavatamrita, when Gopkumar, one of the sacred texts, arrives at he he's doing Vishnu-kirtan. Because Kirtan is actually for Vishnu. It said in the text Shravanam uh, Kirtanam Vishnu Smaranam Padasevanam Archanam bandhanam Dasam sakyam Mani Vedanam Itipum Sarpito Vishnu Bhaktisjan Nabalakshana Kriti bhagavati Adha Tanman Y Uttam Very interesting advice but basically it says here Kirtan, this is a way to approach Vishnu. Vishnu means, is, is another name for, for Krishna, actually. Hmm. Krishna has different appearances. As praha, as nana they call it right? The sense of, of, the, of, of the Godhead. So there's means for approaching Shiva. There's means for approaching Kali. Means for approaching Ganesh. Ganesh. Gana means people common people. And Esh means Lord. Ganesh is the Lord of the common people. And the common people want common things. Hmm? So every businessman in India has Ganesh over his business. I hope I'll get some money today. <laughs> That's what the common people want, not uncommon people. <laughs> uncommon people, they don't want money. They, they see where the limitations of that. Hmm? So it's not all it's all one, so to speak, but it's 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 different at the same time. Different faces of the absolute for different purposes of of, uh, and ideals of humanity. And if we want if we want if we are so bold as to think that we could have a relationship with reality that is that is intimate and loving and reciprocal thereby. Krishna is for this. Hmm. And naturally then, he's easily approached by song. So it says, satatam kirtayantomam. He says, Kirtan, this is my devotees, this is what they do. This is how they're characterized. Hmm. Shiva never says, you want to know who's my devotee, who's ever chanting my name. Never says that. Durga never says that. Now, Kirtan of Krishna is so popular that that people incorporate A limb of bhakti into the jnan mark, into yoga mark, into karma mark. I don't object to it, but I'm just giving some representing the text here as to where the idea of kirtana comes from, what discipline it is attached to, what discipline it is of of, in the broader context of yoga, spiritual discipline. It is a part of. Not only is a part of bhakti. But it's central to bhakti. Therefore, in a few words, Krishna wants to describe the characteristics of his devotees. And he says, satatam kirtayantamam. They primarily be recognized by this, doing kirtan about me and satatam. means an interesting thing, too. Normally what I've said, that it can be done anywhere, therefore it's user-friendly. You can do it on the bus. At least quietly, or even out loud. (laughs) The, The chanting can be done anywhere. Even if you don't want to chant, other people chant and you hear it, isn't it? So it's very friendly. It's a very, it's kind of represents, it draws from the Absolute this kind of attention that makes the Absolute more present and readily accessible, just like human psychology. If you hear people talking about you in the other room, you will be right there with your ear, talking about me. What are they saying? Okay. This is very natural. So, in praise of Krishna, nam of Krishna, nam namni. There's this. I was somebody showed me a video the other day of uh, what is that called? S- cyber or something? Something simo somatic. Anyway, the idea, that's a very limited field in science, but of, of capturing the form of sound. And they, they created some machines that show the beautiful... You make a sound and, it, and the mandala comes. You know what a mandala is? Hmm? Every mantra has a corresponding mandala, a graphic depiction, which is the, which is the, set, the, the, the form of the sound. It's, a, it's kind of very, uh, um, not enough people interested in the field, but in bhakti we're very much acquainted with this idea that every, form, every sound has a form. Krishna is the form of the sound of irresistibility, something like that. So the sound and the, the name corresponds with the form. Mystics are experiencing that, like ultimate reality, you know, like they've entered into a loving, reciprocal uh, relationship with, with, with someone who's like the best possible friend, or like a romantic uh, relationship with, with the absolute. It's a very extraordinary idea. So, at any rate, the satatam, which means. It's easy, it can always be done in any circumstance. You don't have to first take a bath and then light incense and sit quietly or whatever. There are are a lot of prerequisites for different types of practice. It's, It's readily accessible. There are no real hard and fast rules for engaging in that. Again, even if you don't want to engage in it, even the trees are hearing it when we're chanting, the stones. It, not only you're benefiting, but others are benefiting. See, it has a giving connotation to it, the chanting. You think, I'll go and chant for myself, but other people will hear, and they'll be benefited too. But there's another implication of satatam. Satatam means always. So always means, that means in all time and beyond time. That means this kirtan is means, and it is the ends. Shriakanta-kanta-param-purusha-kalpatara-vodruma-bhumis-chintamani-ganam-ito-yam-amritam kataganam-natyam-gam-anam-apibam-si-pryasakir Like this, this, this uh, realm of bhakti, this center, this Lila divine play of the Absolute, Krishna is described like this. Oh, in that place, kataganam natyam Gamanam that all the song there, all the talk there is song, all the walk is dancing. What must be the song then? What must be the dancing of that place? So that kirtan is not something that they will do to end. That kirtan will bring about meditation, it will arrest the mind of its own power and force and 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 give one access to the romantic life of the Absolute and participation in that. Hmm? And so here it's very nicely phrased Satatam kirtayanto, ma'am. Yatantas chadradabataha. Namaschantas chamam nityam nitya upasate. Last part of this is the last part of this. Nitya upasate. And first part Satatam kirtayanto, mam Nitya Upasate. Nitya also means eternal. Yukta means to make connection. Hmm? Upasate. It means they're always doing kirtan, and they're doing it nitya yukta upasate with an aspiration for uh, nitya yukta, for union with me. Krishna says to have to become one with me. But what he means by this—very interesting—the kind of oneness he's talking about—he says they do kirtan to become one with me in love, not to be me, but to be just like if I say, "What's your name?" Melvin. You and I are one, All right? I say, she and I are one. You don't think that she and I are the same person? We have—we are together. We're on the same page. We're, we stand for the same thing. We love one another. Hmm? So this is a dynamic kind of union that Bhakti advocates with the Absolute, not where your individuality as a as an individual soul disappears, and in the name of unity, but it's preserved for the sake of reciprocal dealings with the Absolute to if you and I are in love, you and I become we. It's not that you disappear or I disappear, but it's we now. It's a dynamic unity, a unity of, unity of love. Love is as much about unity is as it is about difference. Two things, unity and oneness and difference at the same time. So the, the understanding of the nature of transcendence, an enlightened life, if you will, in the bhakti tradition is one in which there's, where there's a union between our individual self as a unit of consciousness, a unit of giving capacity and tendency with the absolute that is a, is a kind of a, a, a dynamic, because, as I say, union that, uh, of love that in which the dance or the love life, the play, the lila of um, the absolute um, we're able to participate in. So nityuktupasute means that they do this kirtan with a desire to enter into a relationship with me. That means they do it not to stop it, not to end. We don't do bhakti to get knowledge and then we give up bhakti. We do bhakti for bhakti's sake, kirtan for kirtan's sake. And well, then what is kirtan? So kirtan is glorify Krishna. So if you love someone. Then you, you want to glorify them, and you want to attract their attention. You want to say things about them that they will be attracted, and you know, so forth, and, and you want to give yourself to them, and so and so on. But um, when you attract their attention, and they express love for you, you don't stop doing that, do you? It continues. Just like I said, like a young girl falls in love with a young boy. Of course, the problem in the material life is, after a while, that beautiful young guy turns into an old couch potato. <laughs> yeah, that happens. He's just watching the football game on She wants to go to the yoga center. You know. So, <laughs> so the, the, the that one hit home. The forms here—they're all changing and transforming before us. Look like one thing, but turn out to be something else. But that's not the way it is with Krishna. To be attached to Krishna, you're attached to something that's enduring. Our attachment here is to something that doesn't endure. So the sense of I that comes from that doesn't endure either, and it's disconcerting. I'm off balance. But to make the same use the same emotional. I mean, we're emotional beings, we're reasonable beings, but we're emotional beings too. Bhakti employs our emotional reality, component of our existence. And as you can see from talking about this, it also employs our reasonable, logical faculties. This is a, you know, I'm trying to speak reasonably here. There's some thought to all of this. There's some, there's some, this is about well-reasoned love. And well-reasoned means, if we're well-reasoned, if we reason well, we should reason that there must be love because that's what we're all after. We must just be looking for it in the wrong place because we're not getting it. I'm after it here, but it looked like it was there, but then, it, like I say, it turned into something else. So we may conclude, wait, hey, love is not what it's all about, that's the problem. Let me just come to knowledge of the difference between myself and the body and sit still forever, but that's very much uh, denying the human sense that we all have, that the life must be about love. Bhakti is a confirmation of that. And the Krishna manifestation of divinity is particularly a confirmation of that. That's why he appears human-like. Here we find the absolute in the human-like form where he's vulnerable. Love is a vulnerable condition. We're speaking about the Achilles heel of the absolute. Do you want to get in the door there? That's not so easy. We're all takers down here. We have some meanness to us. Hmm? How are you going to get in that door? So, this bhakti offers a very like, easy way. It, the target is Krishna, and Krishna means the Absolute has fallen in love with those who love him, with his devotees who have passed through the detachment of Shiva and have gone to the other side, and some of them are, are in this world. And they've reached that pitch of devotion and the suffering from separation from Krishna. And then he incarnates and speaks the Gita, takes them with him. And this Leela is going around and round like this, round and round, coming into the world, leaving, coming, and going. By the force of the devotion. So we're talking about approaching the absolute in such a way that, that you're kind of he's vulnerable. Love is a f- Krishna has fallen in love with Radha, who embodies the fullest love. He's fallen in love, so that, that's time if you tender to him in, that, in consideration of that, he'll listen to you. <laughs> he's needy. Then <laughs> He's needy in a full sense, Krishna. This is the idea. The more needy Bhagwan is, God is, the more accessible God is. God doesn't really have any needs. Therefore, people say, why feed God? Why should I give my money? God doesn't need money. But when he when he when he becomes conquered, if you will, the Godhead, by love, then he appears needy and he accepts love. So that's our opportunity to get in the door, so to speak. So this kirtan, therefore, Satatam means that not only is it easy to do and it can be done anywhere and any time, there are no hard and fast rules and and uh, and so forth, but but it's perpetual, and it's about awakening a perpetual relationship with the Absolute and in intimacy. Let me say one thing about that. Intimacy means this. I'll give you an example. If I was to say to you and convince you, it's not true, so I'm just giving an example, I'm God, and I could convince you like that, that I was God, you would say, oh my God. <laughs> And you would go, whoa, <laughs> that's heavy. And you'd be moved back. So if we want to have intimacy with the Godhead, intimate, if the finite wants to have an intimate relationship with the infinite, the infinite is going to have to take an apparent finite appearance in order for that intimacy to be possible. The Aishvarya, the godliness, the prowess and so forth of the Godhead has to be played down and suppressed in order for that intimacy between the finite and the finite to take place. Krishna represents that. We call it madurja, sweetness. When the all-powerful becomes apparently in need, that's charming. not really in need, it's a play. Lila means play. But in this play, then, then the Absolute is making itself that much more accessible. But then after all, we have to consider as well, It takes power to play. If you want to go play in uh, Hawaii, you have to have worked and put some money in the bank and have some power. Power to go there, power to pay your bills when you're not there. So who's only playing has all power. So this manifestation of divinity, Krishna. Look at the gods and goddesses. They're all doing something. All got something to accomplish. Krishna's only playing. So this is the way these mystics have depicted the Absolute in its, at its heart, so to speak. And a corresponding approach then, through song, through kirtan and so forth, and with the view to enter into a relationship. And he says another thing here too about kirtan. He says, Satatam Because these are all nice ideas, they're poetic and they're charming and so forth and so on, but they're not that easy to put into practice. They are easy, comparatively perhaps. To do kirtan is easy. To to sitting and looking at a white wall for eight hours, uh, some disciplines of meditation call for. It's a little easier to chant. Um, you can even bring your kids along. <laughs> so, um, uh, so um, <laughs> at the same time, it is a spiritual discipline, and and so there are some things. That can be done that will improve our capacity to take advantage of the kirtan. So Krishna mentions it here. He says, Itantaschad Durdavattaha. He says, My devotees are always chanting about me, and they're endeavoring very intensely to do things that are favorable for that chanting. They've organized their life in such a way that that their their detachment will be to let go of things that aren't favorable to bhakti to embrace things that are favorable to bhakti. If, for example, it was favorable to bhakti to, to get up early in the morning, then they would get up or If it was favorable to sleep late, then they would sleep late, and they organized their whole life around this. This way they transcend the duality of the mind by which I determine what's good and what's bad. We, instead of following those dictates, what's auspicious, what's inasmish, inauspicious. What's auspicious for bhakti? i do that. What's inauspicious for bhakti? I won't do that. These are the rules of bhakti, so to speak. They're not really rules, but they're like if you. It used to be in times gone by, if a, if a young girl wanted to attract a young man, then she'd find out from an from his friend that he really likes apple pie or something like that, and then she. She 'd bake an apple pie and be carrying it to school, and there at the bus stop would be that aroma or something like that, and So she would do things that she heard what she knew he liked, and he likes red, so she's there she is in a red dress that day, or something like that so that 's the discipline of bhakti. not too difficult. Hmm? You understand <laughs> it's <not laughs> it 's very user friendly so this is what Krishna wants to say about his devotees, characterizing them in a few words with emphasis on kirtan and its efficacy. Does anyone have any question? Question or comment? Yes. In many traditions, for example, the Bible talks, Jesus says, hallowed be thy name, the name of God is holy. So how is it that the actual name of God has a special quality to it? Well, let me give you an example. What's in a name? I say, what's in a name? If someone does something and you want to follow up on them, and you say, did you get his name? Did you get his name? Or now, to, let's say, now we're named by, by a number, by a social security number, right? That's our identity. And there are identity th- thieves. And if they get your name, your social security number, then they got your bank account and they got everything, right? All your attachments—they're taking them away. <laughs> attachments are still there, but the things are not. That's the so. Um, just materially speaking, as I say, there's there's much to a name, hmm? and it used to be in times gone by that names would be given that had some corresponding corresponds with the reality of the person. In in, in other words, there was more of a correspondence between the name and the person. What does Tom mean? I don't know, tell me. Tom. But then Tom gets named by a nickname, right? Which more corresponds with what Tom or Bruce or Harry or Mary are really like. So there's a relationship between the sound the name and the object. And the more perfect language is, it would be determined, I think, by the extent to which the sound corresponds with the object. It actually corresponds with it. So now you take names of God. Okay, let's take Buddha. Buddha. Now the meaning of Buddha in English is it's like wisdom, buddha, wisdom, isn't it? Intelligence, an enlightened mind. So when we say buddha, we're saying that we're, we're speaking about the, the enlightened mind of the absolute, or you say um, Allah is another tradition in the Islamic tradition. Allah means the Almighty One, so the name corresponds with, I don't know how much it does linguistically, but I'm saying it, the meaning is the Almighty One. So there are there are two basic types of names of God in our estimation. And ours is a theology of name, so it's a good place to ask about it. Theology of Nam, Kirtan, Kirtan of the name. And in this theology, there's two basic types of names. One are indirect names of God, one are direct names of God. Indirect names of God are like this, enlightened one, almighty one, the, uh, the all-powerful one. These are indirect names of God. Why are they indirect names of God? Because they speak about God in relation to the world, largely. Hmm? They're speaking about God from our perspective in this world. They're speaking about God in relation to what He does for us. He's the provider. God provides, uh, oh, you know, give us our daily bread or something like that. God provides. So there's a lot of names like this, but they're all they're placing God. In the secondary position, in a sense, he's primary. He's perma- per- providing, but he's providing for us. We're in the center. There was a a devotee many years ago in the in the, in the nineteen late nineteen twenties. One of the first to ever go to the West. He went to England, and then he was touring. and He was in Germany. He first went to England. He was in Germany, and they some religious people invited him to a drama. About theistic drama, and in the drama, there was something going on on the stage, and God was in the balcony. So every now and then, God would come out and say, "Bless you," you know. He come out, condemn you, or something like that. So, so they asked him what they thought of the drama. He thought, he said it was very interesting, but but you placed God in the balcony. The main stage is down here. <laughs> you understand human life and what God will do for us, and so forth. So there's names like this and ways through those names that people here relate with the Absolute, but they're all kind of in, more in relation to what he can do for me. Hmm? And then there are primary names, and they're about what we can do for him, something like that. So the Krishna is one of those names. Gobinda, hmm? Gopal. Hmm? These are all names of Krishna in Lila. Hmm? In, 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 they describe him, the Absolute, in relationship with devotees who are giving entirely of themselves to Him, and so through them He's playing Himself out, His joy that He, the joy that He is constituted of, the, the Ananda, and so forth. So that's like, then, then God becomes the center stage. You see. So this, so anyway, there. Are the, but in all these names of God, they have some. You know, if you study them linguistically, then they they speak about the Godhead either indirectly in our terminology and theology, or or directly. So um, they're not unrelated. And then, of course, as much as I say, as the sound itself actually corresponds with the object, then it's perfect. And now there's something to sound also. There's a quality to the sound and to the utterance. Hmm? There are the letters, and then there's how you utter them. And the language, of course, of the real spiritual dimension is not English, it's not Spanish, it's not Sanskrit, it's not Bengali, Hindi, it's not logic or reason, but it's love. Love is the language there. In Leela, love is the language. So, to speak this name of Krishna, you have to learn the language of love. So there's a changing and a cleansing of the heart that takes place. And at a certain point, there's that Krishna expresses love for us. That's bhava descends, this ecstasy in the heart. Hmm? And then that reciprocation allows the individual soul to, to, to sing that name with ecstasy, with feeling, with love. And this propels them then into, into an eternal uh, relationship, so so it's not just um, you know these uh, four letters or, or whatever you know Rama R A M or something like that, but those that's the external manifestation of that. And we speak of the chanting in terms of chanting without paying attention. Nam, nama parad, nam Abhas, bhas, kind of a, a, a shadow of the of the full name, and shuddhanam, the pure. Name and these are all relating to conditions of the heart and degrees to which we've withdrawn from worldliness and entered the world, the inner landscape and so forth. Mm-hmm. We're moving there, so um, it's a big, uh, big topic. Um, but um, these in these direct names, as I'm speaking of them, they all they all are related to to the to the leela itself. Hmm? To the life of God, in a romantic life of God. So, so when, you, so you know, you think about it like this: if you are speaking about the romantic life of God, that's a little embarrassing. Just like if I'm speaking, you know, last what happened last night at Drista's house? Him and his wife—they had an argument. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a form of love, you know. <laughs> they were arguing last night. So. So even in the Leela, are arguing with Radha and so forth, and there are, there are things to... Uh, and, and some devotees, are, through their meditation, they've entered the Lila. they're, they're aware of that, Do they sing about that. And this is embarrassing, <laughs> to the absolute, so to speak, in this world, to share that kind of information. So after a while, he'll come and silence you and take you there, something like that. If you talk about the, if you sing these internal names that all correspond with Leelas, and you understand... Then you become acquainted with them. After a while, you say, you know that about me. That's not the, to share with anybody and everybody. Most people aren't even interested in me. Would speak of telling them about my, uh, my problems with my, my love life. Hmm? Rather, won't let me into the grove, into the bushes, you know, so, to meet with her. I've got a problem. Uh, you're telling people about that. You better come stay with me, <laughs> something like that. So this is a powerful way to attract his attention. I know it's an esoteric answer, but...